Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God in whom we move and breathe, grow up from within our hearts the goodness of love which makes all things new. Amen. And please be seated. As I shared last Sunday, the season of Easter and the Gospel of John are both celebrations of life. And in his attempt to celebrate life, John intentionally mimics the creation account in the book of Genesis in his Gospel. However, rather than seven days of creation, which conclude with God resting, in the Gospel of John, seven miracles are followed by the resurrected Jesus who meets with and talks to Mary Magdalene in a garden. The imagery of Jesus and Mary in a garden is a picture of new life in a new Genesis, a new world that builds slowly in John's gospel, uh, not creation day by creation day, but gospel uh, by miracle by miracle. And so throughout the season of Easter, we're in a sermon series titled New Creations, which is exploring the goodness of Jesus' life in this world, one miracle at a time. And it's through John's seven miracles that we're offered a window into resurrected life, not tomorrow, but here, now, today. Have you ever noticed how different churches have a different focus? Like, like there are some churches that are all about the Bible. They're, like te- they're known to be like teaching churches, right? I grew up in a teaching church. And then there, were, there are other kinds of churches. There are like missional churches. It's all about going out and doing good in the world, and that's the primary focus. And then there are like spirit-filled churches, and a lot of people at those churches might have like a dove on their bumper, right? And it's all about the, the gifts and the miraculous works that God can do in this world. And, and at those churches, the music is usually really, really great. And so you've got the teaching church, you've got the missional church, and you've got the spirit-filled church. And I grew up in an uber-conservative Bible church. It was all about teaching. It was all about reading the Bible. It was all, it was all Bible. There was only a two-headed trinity uh, in the church that I grew up in. It was God and Jesus, and they were found in the Bible. And that was the focus of my life growing up. Until my best friend in junior high started attending a Pentecostal church, and he invited me to go with him. Now, at the church I grew up in, there were no drums, there were no electric guitars. It was just a piano and a couple voices. And at this Pentecostal church, it was a full-on rock band. I mean, it was incredible. I'd never seen anything like it. And then we broke out into the youth room, and in the youth room there was this message, and this message was about following Jesus. And of course, in a Pentecostal church, to show that you are following Jesus as a true follower of Jesus, well, you're going to speak in tongues. 
Now, I'd been at church my whole life. I'd even read the story about tongues in Acts chapter 2 over and over and over again, but I'd never experienced tongues, nor had I been told that I must speak in tongues. And so the small youth group, quickly realizing that I was the only one who did not speak the tongue, they gathered around me and they started praying over me in tongues. And the youth pastor started saying things like, just speak. And so I'd say, like what? And then he would say, just, just, just let it flow. Just let it flow. And as we pray over you, tongues will come out of you. Well, I tried. I mean, I closed my eyes. I believed in my heart. I wanted something to come out of my mouth other than English, but nothing came out. I remember going home that night feeling kind of like a failure. <laughs> a couple of years later, my best friend left the Pentecostal church and they went to a charismatic church. Now, a charismatic church is kind of like a Pentecostal church, but it's less Pentecostal. And, and during my time at this church, in my early high school years, uh, every year they would have a week of healing, and they'd bring in a, a preacher who was a healing preacher. And I will always remember there was this one night, it was like a Friday or Saturday night, and the spirit was moving, and people were singing, and the healer invited people to come down to the front, and he would barely touch their foreheads, and they would fall over. And I thought, that is spectacular. <laughs> so I said to my friends, I'm going down there. And they said, why? And I said, why not? Right? So I went down to the front and I got in this line and the preacher came and he placed his hand, just barely even touched me. And I fell backwards and I was caught and I was, I was laid down on the floor. I remember looking up at the ceiling thinking, this is so weird. <laughs> And I looked around to my right and to my left, and there were fellow brothers and sisters lying down with me. And I decided, well, it must be time to get up. So I got up, and I went back to my seat, and my friend said, did you fake that? And I said, no. I seriously fell over. And they said, were you healed? And I said, I didn't even know I was sick. Then I went to seminary, a very conservative seminary, and we studied the book of Acts, and I was taught this word cessation, cessationism, which is this idea that these miraculous gifts that are believed in today in Pentecostal churches don't actually exist today. They've ceased to exist. Those miracles belonged in the early church to show that something special was happening in the world. Back and forth and back and forth, the arguments and conversations go about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And as interesting as I find this conversation, it makes me wonder, what is the purpose of miracles? Like, why did Jesus perform them? And perhaps more importantly, am I to be convinced to believe in Jesus due to an experience of signs and wonders? Like, is that what is supposed to move me to belief? In this morning's gospel reading, Jesus had spent some time in Samaria, but he had just traveled back to Galilee where many Galileans welcomed him. The text tells us that they welcomed him because they had witnessed all that he had done in Jerusalem. The text is also intentional to tell us that he was back in Cana where he had changed water into wine, uh, the story that we talked about last Sunday. And so put simply, those who had witnessed some signs and wonders, they opened their hearts to receive Jesus as he came back to their town. Now, here's where John chapter 4 gets interesting. 
An official's son is sick. He goes to Jesus and begs him to travel to his home to heal his son. And in the hearing of everyone, Jesus declares, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official then responds to Jesus saying, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus then says to the official, go, your son will live. The text then reads, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his child was alive. He asked them the hour that that happened. And they said, yesterday at one. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. At first glance, this story doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Like Jesus seems to say, stop asking for signs in order to believe. But then Jesus performs a sign by healing the official's son and the official believes. What exactly is going on here? Well, the literary clue is found in three verses, verse 48 through verse 50, which read as follows. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. Notice that in these verses, the official is said to believe before he finds out that his son has been healed. That is to say that he's not believing. He's not believing in Jesus because of the miracle. He's believing in something else. And the text is very intentional to explain his belief with these words. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. What exactly is going on here? Well, the story, I think, is differentiating motivation for belief in Jesus. Like, one kind of belief is motivated by the miraculous. Water to wine, feeding the masses in the wilderness, Lazarus rising from the dead. But in this passage, Jesus seems to be interested in a different kind of belief. And according to this story, he's interested in a belief that is motivated by his words. Now, this is a very Gospel of John idea because in John chapter 1, Jesus is said to be the Word made flesh. In other words, Jesus is the embodiment, the, the revelation of the divine in this world. And so Jesus seems to be saying here, believe in me. Believe in the Word made flesh, not my miracles that I am doing. You see, miracles, as wonderful and glorious as they are, may actually distance us from participation in the word made flesh. And so about this peculiar story, here are some things that biblical scholars say. If this were a treasure hunt, those looking for miracles would be like people caught up in the clues, forgetting that they're looking for the prize. Or if this were an attempt to drive somewhere, those looking for miracles would be like people caught up in road signs rather than actually getting to the place that they're wanting to go. Or if this were a game, those looking for miracles would be like people getting caught up in the rules of the game, all the while forgetting to enjoy the game that they're playing. 
In other words, this story is saying that when it comes to the life of Jesus, it can be altogether easy to lose sight of Jesus in light of his spectacular miracles. But to be clear, miracles are the wrong thing to focus on because in the Gospel of John, it's the word that is to grasp our attention. Now, I realize that this may feel like splitting hairs, and it kind of is, but it's an important hair to split. Why follow after Jesus? And what exactly does following after Jesus mean? Well, if one comes to faith in Jesus due to some kind of sign or miracle, then following after Jesus will necessarily include enacting signs and miracles. Kind of like my experience in the Pentecostal church in which belief is not just motivated, but it's actually validated by the miraculous. Similarly, but slightly different, if a person comes to faith in Jesus due to the promise of heaven rather than hell, then following after Jesus will necessarily include the making promises of heaven rather than hell. And as wonderful as a miracle is, and as hopeful as heaven can be, this story is inviting us to focus our gaze not on the miracles nor the future bliss, but on Jesus, the Word made flesh. And again, I realize that this is like splitting hairs, but it's an an important hair to split, especially in the Gospel of John. Because in John's Gospel, there aren't just seven signs and wonders. There are also intentionally seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. And so perhaps the story is inviting us to move beyond the miraculous so that we can be moved by the word itself. Maybe that's what John is doing. And this word, the embodiment of divinity, well, it is pretty spectacular. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And of course, when we hear the words, I am, we're thinking of the divine words, right? I am who I am. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And in John chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Bread, light, door, shepherd, resurrection and life way, truth, and life, and finally, vine. About these seven self-statements, let us begin by noticing that all seven are metaphors. I think this is really important. Many people attempt to pull one of these out. It's this one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And many read that statement literally, literally, But to do so is to misread Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. Clearly, Jesus is not literally bread, nor is Jesus literally light, nor is Jesus literally a door, nor is Jesus literally a shepherd. If anything, he's the child of a carpenter, so maybe he's literally a carpenter. But that doesn't make it into the metaphorical I am statements. Clearly, Jesus is not any of these things. These are metaphors which point to something deeper and more profound. Similarly, Jesus is not literally resurrection, way, truth, 
and life in John's gospel. Again, these are metaphors which point to something deeper and more profound. Jesus, the word that we are invited to believe is bread, which is to say Jesus is sustenance. The divine is food. The divine is care for those in need. In Jesus, the word that we're invited to believe is also light, which is to say that Jesus, this divine revelation, is somehow, for us in this world, illumination. Somehow Jesus is sunrise in the midst of a dark night of the soul experience that we all have on certain nights. Jesus is sight, despite humankind's struggle to clearly see. But it's more than that. Jesus, the word we're invited to believe, is also door. Now, this one doesn't get a lot of airtime, does it? Jesus as door. <laughs> but it's very profound. It's an important I am statement because doors are what open and close. Doors are what let people in and out. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is a door that is intentional to ensure the safety of all the sheep. To be clear, it's not about letting some people in and other people not in. This is about safety for the flock. But Jesus, the word, is also shepherd. Shepherd. Which is to say Jesus is care. The divine is protection in the midst of danger, peace in the midst of fear. But the word is also resurrection and life. What does that mean? Resurrection as in new beginnings. Resurrection as in being born again and again and again. Resurrection as in seeing it all differently. As perplexing as that can sometimes be, having our eyes opened, having our mind stirred is an intoxicating experience as humans, isn't it? Resurrection as in having our hearts and minds changed, which is all very much what it means to be alive. And Jesus, the word that we're invited to believe, is also way, truth, and life. And of course, central to Jesus' way, truth, and life is the Christian notion of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. For you see, there is no other way to rise but from ashes. And so our death, every single experience of death is not a tomb, but in our divine story, it is a womb. A darkness that holds within itself an unceasing hope in forthcoming light and life which we followers of Jesus grow to expect, to hope for, even when all seems gloomy. And lastly, Jesus, the word that we're invited to believe is also vine. I love how the I am statements grow and build and conclude with Jesus as vine. Like I think most Christians would be like, well, let's end with I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And let's read that one literally and all the other ones metaphorically because that one's really the most important. But it's not. They culminate in vine, vine. I have a neighbor uh, behind our house, and he loves his vine. <laughs> he loves his vine. In fact, he put a trellis on top of the fence to help the vine grow. And this vine is so sticky, it like catches everything. Like, like it catches the trellis, and it catches the backside of our trees, and it climbs up our trees. And when we used to have a fort for our kids when they were little, it climbed over to the fort and worked its way around the roof of the fort. I mean, vines are sticky things, aren't they? Unrelented, all tangled up together. And as annoying as a vine is, it's a pretty remarkable thing in its ability to connect, isn't it? 
It's connected to branches, which are connected to roots. It's stuck to fences and trees and bushes and anything else that can wrap itself around, for you see everything. It is all spectacularly connected. And Jesus is saying that like a vine, our connection to him is the same thing as our being connected to the divine. Why follow after Jesus? Because of the miraculous. Why follow after Jesus? Because of heaven. All the while, Jesus declares in the Gospel of John, no. No. For there is something altogether more central and intoxicating to focus our attention upon, which is bread and light and door and shepherd, which is life and death and resurrection, always resurrection, which is vine. For you see, faith in Jesus due to some kind of sign or miracle sets our attention on enacting signs and miracles. Similarly, faith in Jesus due to the promise of heaven rather than hell sets our attention on making promises of heaven rather than hell. Sets our focus on leaving here and going somewhere else where we'll spend the rest of our lives rather than being focused on this one life. And the invitation in this story is not to more miracles or to more eternal promises. Rather, the invitation in this story is to more and more bread and light and door and shepherd here and now. The invitation is to life and death and resurrection, always resurrection now. The invitation is to this stickiness, to this vine that has us all connected to each other and to this planet and to God in whom we all move and breathe and have our being. One of the most peculiar aspects to this story is that Jesus heals the official's son from a distance. It's one of probably two of the most peculiar miracles in the Gospels, right? There's the one in Mark where there's the half healing. Remember, he heals the blind man. He says, what do you see? And he he sees, says, I see trees wa- like waving in the wind and walking. And Jesus has to touch him again to heal him the second time, right? This is kind of like that. There's really no other place where Jesus works a miracle from afar, Usually Jesus is speaking to a person or instructing a person or touching a person when he heals them. But in this story, Jesus is far away from the child that he heals. And this, I think, is the new creation at hand. This is the life into which Jesus is inviting us to be the enfleshment of his very own body. Jesus touched tasted, smelled, heard, and seen in this world today through the lives of those who follow after Christ. Just as we've experienced Jesus in our own lives through others, right? Through other doors that have kept us safe, through other shepherds who have nurtured life in our lives. Just as we've experienced Jesus in our, other, in our own lives through others who have been the enfleshment of the divine metaphors like bread, light, door, shepherd, resurrection, and life, way, truth, and vine. For you see, Christ is risen and we bear witness to his life. We bear witness to the life of Christ not through miracles and future promises, but to truly experience Christ here and now Christ is tasted at a distance through very human lives who are moved by the goodness of love day by day by day by day. And it's into this very love that we are invited to dwell and to embody with our very own lives. May it be so, and let us pray. 
God in whom we move and breathe, grow up from within our hearts the goodness of love that makes all things new. May we be like bread and like light and like a door and a shepherd. May our lives be like resurrection and life. May this church be the way, the truth, and the life, which is to say through death we come to grow. And may this church embody a vine so sticky, so connected, so together that people are touched by it and learn something about your divine heart. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.